I feel like I'm constantly setting up Rube Goldberg machines in my life, these big machines to try and avoid pain and conflict just so I don't have to deal with what may be five seconds of pain or five seconds of conflict. And even though I know this lesson in my head and I know how this, this is no way to live in my heart, I, I honestly don't uh, practice it the way that I want to. The things that I really want to do, sometimes I don't do. And the things that uh, I really don't want to do, sometimes I do. But but that that seems to be the... Uh, the ongoing struggle, you know, for me is, is in some sense staying in touch with that conflict and that pain that makes a good story. Are you guilty of doing everything in your power to avoid pain and conflict? <laughs> I am. If so, that makes you human, right? It's something we all do. But as storytellers, we know deep down that it's actually conflict that makes a character's journey interesting. So why don't we embrace the same idea in the story that we're each living out? In this week's conversation, we talk about that idea and a whole lot more in what is easily one of my favorite episodes to date. I am Harris III, and this is The Story Podcast. There are things meant for you that are currently beyond your imagination. The only way to become a better storyteller is by telling more stories. Your greatest work may not be seen by millions of people. Keep making anyway. To be a writer, we have to sit down and we have to do the work and we don't get up until it's finished. The only hope we have are the stories we tell. Stories not bound by what is possible. We are proud to be storytellers. This week, I sat down with John Booker in LA. I am so excited for you to be able to listen in on our conversation, beginning with how John describes his work in his own words. My life became so much better when I finally came to the realization I didn't have to put a job description around who I am. I began to embrace this idea of an ecosystem of my work. Harris, that was the most freeing thing that that could ever happen to me because I had all these things I wanted to do. And I knew they were all related. I knew they all had to do with narrative. I knew they all had to do with story. But I couldn't bring myself to begin to gate some of them out of the ecosystem and keep some of them in. And I'll be honest with you, over the years, the ecosystem of my creativity has, has grown, it's changed. Sometimes there's new rivers that come into the ecosystem. Sure. Sometimes there's, uh, there, there's paths that get forged up a mountain in the ecosystem that, you know, I didn't even notice before. But I can tell you this, if you look at your work as a living, breathing organism, you begin to take care of it differently. You begin to care for it differently. You begin to look at it through a different lens than you ever have before. So my ecosystem exists at the intersection of art and technology. I am someone who is just as fascinated by 
uh, the, the work of Sophocles in classic ancient mythology is I am the work of crisp milk and the most cutting edge virtual reality AI technology that exists. All of it to me is about how we can tell a better story, how we can offer something to the world that doesn't exist right now. That's what my work's about. John is one of the most fascinating people I've ever met. We originally connected over our mutual affection for the art of magic, and our friendship was solidified over a conversation about our membership at the world-famous Magic Castle in Hollywood, the role of wonder in our world, and, as almost always, the power of stories. When I first met John in person, it was one of those, like, oh my gosh, where have you been my whole life kind of moments. I knew right away that we would be friends, or at least that... I would be doing everything in my power to hang out with him as often as possible. And in this conversation, you're going to discover why. Because of his humility, what you won't hear John talk about is the fact that he has spoken on five continents about using the power of story to change the journeys of individuals, communities, cultures, and nations. And by nations, I actually mean that literally. As in, he talks to the leaders of nations about how the power of story can lead to change. He's also a mythologist, award-winning writer, and a futurist. His books include The Inside Out Story, Master of the Cinematic Universe, Story by the Numbers, and Storytelling for Virtual Reality. That explains why he is consistently tapped by companies like HBO to develop spiritually-themed content for their digital presence, and has served as a writer and consultant for numerous film, television, and VR projects. He does all of this work while also regularly teaching and instructing students in film school in Hollywood. I love the way John talks about his work, but where did that perspective come from? Where did he come from? And how did he make it to Hollywood? I was born in this small town in East Texas and there was a tire plant just on the edge of town. Everybody I knew that I respected worked at this tire plant. And so all growing up, I thought if one day I could maybe just get a job at that tire plant. And if I worked really hard, I might could even talk some woman into marrying me. <laughs> then just maybe, just maybe I could one day, you know, have, have a family and just, just live in this, uh, this little town and work at the tire plant. And man, that would be as good as life ever got. If you had have told me back then that one day I would be standing in the middle of Hollywood telling stories, helping other people to tell their best stories and offering the culture a better story, I would have never believed you. I'm living proof that sometimes the most unlikely people are the people that end up being chosen to do big things. If you consider yourself someone who could never, ever be the right person to do something big that seems to be rumbling around inside you, I'm living proof you may be onto something. Wow. So how did you get to the point from going, I just want to work at a tire shop, <laughs> to uh, I, I now work at the intersection of mythology and technology, like... Yeah artificial intelligence yeah. and virtual reality and it it was it was through the hard hard lesson of what makes a good story and that's conflict and pain i didn't get here on a magic carpet 
I didn't get here by walking through a bed of roses. I got here bleeding and dragging on the floor because I had literally walked through hell in order to get here. And I wouldn't trade it for anything. Sometimes I, I, I drive through uh, Hollywood. I'm on the phone. And, you know, yesterday, actually. That's I was, illegal in L.A. Right, <laughs> right. right. <laughs> I, seriously. As soon as they come out with a, some sort of surgery that they could just implant a phone into my ear, <laughs> I'm the first one to sign up for this because it's just my, my life, my work. But I, I, was, I was driving through Hollywood yesterday. And I'm, I've got two television shows that I'm, I'm in the process of trying to sell, and one of them looks like it's about to go. And all these conversations, I was getting a little frustrated, you know, with, uh, with something that was happening. And I looked down in the midst of my frustration at this, this little scar that I'm showing you right mm -hmm. now on my arm. And whenever I get frustrated in Hollywood, I look down at this little scar. When I was in high school, I, I was so broke and my family was so broke that I would go every week to the plasma center and give plasma for 20 bucks every week. And that was my gas money for that. And I did that for weeks and weeks and weeks all through high school in order to have gas money. I have a scar to this day of where I used to go give plasma. And any time that I feel like, oh, life's not fair in Hollywood trying to sell these TV shows, <laughs> I look down at that scar and I remember that you know, I, I've had worse days. Um, I, it keeps me grounded. It keeps me humble in my work here to, to look and, and remember those times that were so hard. Getting here, it, it cost me everything in some sense, but it, it, it was also the most life-giving process that I've ever experienced I don't know about you. Sometimes I, I feel like I go through my whole life. You know what a Rube Goldberg machine is? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it's one of those things like in Pee Wee's Big Adventure, they set mm -hmm. up the dominoes. And it's basically creating a big machine to accomplish the smallest task. I feel like I'm constantly setting up Rube Goldberg machines in my life. These big machines to try and avoid pain and conflict just so I don't have to deal with what may be five seconds of pain or five seconds of conflict. And even though I know this lesson in my head and I know how this, this is no way to live in my heart, I, I honestly don't uh, practice it the way that I want to. The things that I really want to do, sometimes I don't do. And the things that uh, I really don't want to do, sometimes I do. It seems like somebody else said that. I'm not sure, um, but but that that seems to be the uh, the ongoing struggle, you know, for me is is in some sense staying in touch with that conflict and that pain that makes a good story. Um, I, I often I feel like I try and be a nice guy, and I often feel like when I go to write stories, I'm so nice to my characters. I never want to put them in deep pain and conflict. I'm just so nice to them. And that makes for the most horrible stories. Yeah, sure. You know, if, if it's a story about somebody that just great things happen to them all the time, that's the most uninteresting story we could have. And it's also the most uninteresting life that we could have. Mm -hmm. And if, if that's the life that we're seeking, we may find it. And it may be the emptiest shell of a life 
that we could ever experience. We, we may get to taste every beautiful fruit in the entire garden, and in the end, it end up being ash in our own mouth because we, we didn't pay the price yeah. for what's good in life. So how did you go from the kid giving plasma to buy gas money to <laughs> the guy driving through Hollywood selling TV shows? Yeah. Where, where did you grow up before <laughs> well, living in L.A.? Yeah, I grew up in uh, East Texas. And I, um, through a long story and chain of events, I ended up going to uh, college in Colorado. And I ended up uh, leaving Colorado as soon as I found that you found out that you could. Um, <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I, I love Colorado, but it was just not where um, not where I felt like I was supposed to be. And I got an opportunity to move to New York and to uh, teach in a college film program there and do some work in television there. And so I did that for a couple of years, and I thought, man, this is the city for me. This is, you know, where I'm supposed to be. And it was some of the hardest times of my life. I went through some of the most difficult moments of my life in New York. But I also came to the realization that that was not the place that I was supposed to be. And I felt like I'm supposed to be in Hollywood telling stories. And so one day I... Um, I decided to go to Hollywood and I didn't know anyone. I knew no one. I had no opportunities, had a little money saved up. I came to Hollywood and everything that I've been able to accomplish here has been through hard work. Um, I, I sort of had this prayer when I first arrived in Hollywood that I didn't want to be somebody that just the first week I was here met Steven Spielberg and got my movie made. And <laughs> I, I didn't want to be that person that won the lottery. I wanted, once I had found success in the entertainment industry, for people to look at me and say, that guy earned it. That guy paid his dues. That guy worked up the hard way. Nobody gave it to him. I didn't want there to ever be an excuse that people could write off as to why I was where I was. Because I know sometimes some people do hit the lottery. Some people out, you know, have been out here a, a week and they, their first project you know, ends up on television, and that's great. And also, somebody somewhere gets struck by lightning. That's just the way the world works. Sure. And if you have, have based your creative life on being the person that's going to be struck by lightning, chances are you're going to live a life of disappointment. I wanted, no matter how long it took to climb the mountain the hardest way up, whatever it took. And so when I first arrived in Hollywood, I began uh, taking production assistant jobs on reality television, and I, it was horrible. It was horrible. I, I was in terrible, difficult situations <laughs> uh, on shows that I didn't even want to tell my mother that I was working on this show, afraid she might try and watch it. Um, <laughs> But, She's like, how was your day at work? And you're like, someone yelled at me all day long. Right, it was awful. Right. Or, or I, I, I scraped up vomit from one of the cast members, you know, uh, all day who couldn't stop vomiting from having, you know, been drinking all night. And I smell like weed uh, constantly now because everyone around me is smoking weed. And so that, that was, you know, my life for a period. But it was during that time that I also began to... I began to have this thought. 
I, I began to study the work of this guy named Joseph Campbell that, that wrote this book, uh, The Hero with a Thousand Faces and The Hero's Journey. And you hear, you hear about Joseph Campbell quite a bit in uh, creative circles. Sure. And I read this quote from Joseph Campbell that sort of changed my life. And Joseph Campbell said, I don't believe people are looking for the meaning of life as much as they are looking for the experience of being alive. And that resonated so deeply with me. What does it mean to live? I don't just want to exist. What does it mean to live? I immersed myself so deeply in in that idea of what does it mean to live and in the work of Joseph Campbell at the same time, because I felt like someone who... um, had that, that level of, of consciousness that they could dig out a gym like that from the, mm-hmm. the thoughts of the universe. I wanted to hear more <laughs> of, of what uh, he had to say. And his work has continued to have a, just a big impact on me. I began to recognize in, in looking at his work around mythology, which is kind of what he's known for, um, that we currently live in an age without a mythology. In that we only really have one mythological idea left in our culture to a great extent, and that it's a really dangerous one. And it's this this idea that we believe that our wealth will save us as a culture, and we believe that money will solve you know all the problems. And often, as a creative person, I fell into that trap a lot. I think like, we all do. Yeah. yeah. If I could just get the money to, to make this project, if I could just, <laughs> if money weren't an issue, I would be making way better stuff than I see in the movie theater, or way better music than I'm hearing coming out of Nashville. We always, you know, point to that. But what, what's interesting is even though that has become our dominant cultural narrative, I believe we're wrong. The United States is the most wealthy country in the world, and we don't even rank on the happiness scale. We don't. So, so we know that happiness is not about money, but yet we sort of continue to pursue our lives in such a way that we deep down believe it is. Mm-hmm. That if I can just get financing for this project, if somebody will just put their dollars behind me, then everything will change for me, at that point, you know, in my journey, I began to look back and say, when, when did we start thinking this way? <laughs> and, and, you know, hopefully there's some history nerds that listen to this podcast. <laughs> That's my hope. For all you history nerds out there, I, I began to look back to the, the Reformation and the Industrial Revolution and all these periods in history where human thinking began to change and the cultural narrative and the story that we were all living into began to change. And I, we, we at some point decided that science and history were the only ways to get at truth. But I began reading about this time when, when we used myth and literature to get at truth that we couldn't necessarily get to just through empirical facts and figures. That maybe there was truth to be had in life that wasn't quantifiable truth that I could go and measure by dollars or time. Maybe there was was truth to be had that came from within me as opposed to a treasure I had to go travel around the world to try and seek out. And so I began to follow that more deeply. 
I, I, I love, there's this uh, really interesting quote by um, Ursula Le Guin, uh, who said that there's been great societies that did not use the wheel, but there's never been a society that did not tell stories. And the more I thought about that, the more it began to resonate with me that the answer to, to moving forward in, in culture was to help redefine the story, was to help tell a better story. It's probably no secret to anybody listening that right now in our country, man, it's divisive times. Absolutely. There's, there's a lot of competing ideas about what truth is, about what's good and what's bad and who's good and who's bad. and um, Or even that truth matters. Or maybe. that it matters <laughs> at all. Yeah, that it matters at all. It, and so my work has really become about not trying to defend one narrative or another, not trying to tear down someone else's narrative, but my work has become about telling a better story. I just want to offer a third way through. It's, it's not about, um, you know, which side am I going to side with on any issue that's dividing us in our nation right now, but it's, it's much more about what, how could we offer a better story? And so I began to look back throughout history at different times in history when a story like changed the culture, when it changed everything. I was blown away at different examples uh, of stories that really ended up um, changing the way that people thought. If you've been listening to our show for any period of time, you'll notice a constant theme about how much stories matter. We've talked repeatedly over the last few episodes, especially about the power that stories have. And honestly, it wasn't planned. And we, we never really map out our interviews. We simply try to find the right people and just sit down and attempt to have compelling conversations with amazing creators and storytellers. Conversations that we hope will inspire you and your work. And yet, even without a plan in place, because stories are powerful is a phrase we hear time and time again. But John was the first guest we've ever had on the show who mentioned specific stories that he knows of that serve as examples and hard proof that stories really do shape culture and quite literally change the world. The moment it came up, I knew we had to hear at least one. I, I've, I've been writing a book on this because I found so many that I feel like, man, we've got to get these stories out, you know, that have changed the world so much. So one of the first stories I came across when I began to look at stories that had changed the world um, was this idea of Chinese foot binding. Are you familiar with that? Mm -hmm. Have you ever you know, seen that? Sure. It was this yeah. horrific practice that went on in China where they bound women's feet into this lotus-shaped shoe sure. so that uh, women walked a certain way. What's interesting is that the, the origin of Chinese foot binding really had to do a lot more with men than it had to do with women. It was a sign of wealth that a man would show. If his wife's feet were bound, it was a sign to everyone else they were wealthy enough she didn't have to go work in the field. She didn't have to work in the rice fields if her, if her feet were bound. Hmm. This practice went on for more than 2,000 years 2,000 years, women suffered through this very horrific practice that literally broke the bones of the feet of these women. 
Until after the turn of the century, when the 1900s began, something happened and the practice stopped in one generation. Pearl S. Buck, the daughters, I'm going to say that again, Pearl S. Buck, daughter of U.S. missionaries, lived and grew up in China, and she often saw this practice. And she wrote a book called The Good Earth. You probably had to read it in high school. When Pearl S. Buck wrote The Good Earth, it changed the culture. She didn't make the book about the horrors of Chinese foot binding. She told stories about characters who experienced it. It wasn't even the point of the book. But people around the world read the book. People around the world begin to have conversations and say, does that practice still exist? Do people still do that? In one generation, the practice completely was wiped out. It completely stopped after that story changed the culture. Did Pearl S. Buck even set out to change the culture with her story? No. She told a story that was honest, a story that was true, a story from her own life, her own experience. And it was a story for the right moment, at the right time in history, and people's lives got better. She offered a better story. So how do we do that? That is the question, isn't <laughs> it? It's the story community. How do, we, how do we tell the stories that change the world? And two, you know, and maybe this is a question for later in our conversation, I don't know, but how do we also, how do we, how do we not allow that idea of quote-unquote stories change the world to become so cliche that we stop believing it? Yeah. We become apathetic to it because we don't actually believe it's possible. Yeah. You know, what's interesting is that we often judge all stories with the same ruler. We look at stories and we say, as long as it is a story, it's good. And I'm a, a firm believer in the, the innate power of stories and the innate goodness of stories just as a medium in and of themselves. But there's something that makes some stories better than other stories. The, the story of someone who finds uh, redemption from a life of slavery is better than a story of someone who molests children. There are some stories that we want to live into. And the, the difficulty can be in culture, then how do we go about navigating the, the, the hard road of making value judgments about different people and their perceived lifestyles and you know all sorts of um, uh, things that, that are divisive you know, amongst us? We can argue about the issues. It's hard to argue against someone's story. You know, it's hard to say, well, your story is not valid. I think where we can do a better job as storytellers is being much more dedicated to the hard truths in storytelling than we have been. If you're like me, you're someone who likes to avoid conflict whenever possible. And yet these stories that changed the world, they didn't just happen because someone uh, was kept their story to themselves quiet in a closet. They were willing to, to tell about difficult things, and there were people that didn't like it. I, I think this is one of the, the things that... Uh, 
uh, we've bought into is that maybe we're here as storytellers in, in, who are generally nice people just to become even nicer people. But maybe our, our task is more about raising the dead than it is about just be, becoming, making everyone nicer people. Maybe our task is about bringing things to life which have completely seemed suffocated in culture. You brought up just a moment ago, it seems like maybe the truth doesn't even matter anymore. You know what I'm telling storytellers right now? The truth matters more than ever. We need to be telling stories about the value of the truth and what happens in cultures when the truth is lost. We're all familiar with some of these uh, old wives' tales and ancient fables and myths about uh, the, the boy who cried wolf, for example. And what's the point of the boy that cried wolf? Well, it's, it's a story that is meant to say, yeah, if you, if you lie, if you try and tell lies, eventually people will stop believing you. We used to have stories that really resonated for generation after generation after generation because they were true and they were simple. They were easy for people to digest. This is another key, I feel, in telling stories that, that change the world. Stories that change the world are not stories that have 27 plot points to them. They're not photographs that are so difficult to perceive the meaning of that I, I, I walk away frustrated. They're not songs that are so difficult for me to listen to that I never want to hear them again. Most of the time, and not all the time, but most of the time, good stories are quite simple, yet they're profound. And I think that's something we can do a better job at, is helping each other with our honesty in sure. crafting stories. It's hard to do. Yeah, you know? it is hard to do, isn't it? I wanted to play devil's advocate with John, not because I disagreed with him, but because I felt like there'd be some great insight to be gained from hearing him talk more about this idea. Explain films like Arrival or yeah. many of Christopher Nolan's films where yeah. one someone listening, I could hear them thinking, those are my favorite films, yeah. uh, the ones that make me think that are deep and have all these layers. Yeah. But John is telling me right now that the best stories are ones that are simple. Yeah. You know, in, in the, I'm so glad you asked that question <laughs> because I think this is an important distinction that sure. we have to make. What people love about films like Arrival and films like Christopher Nolan's films, it's not the complexity of those films. It's the simple feeling that is produced in them from those films. Right. You just said someone is you know, very likely to say, <laughs> I like that film because it makes me think. Well, that's a pretty simple idea. Hmm. I like that film because it, it, it helps me to escape my problems. Well, that's a pretty simple idea. Most of the time, what resonates with people is a really simple idea. Now, I think Christopher Nolan is brilliant, but his films are often like that Rube Goldberg machine we talked about a few minutes ago. They're these incredibly complex machines that at the end <laughs> of the day end up performing a very simple task. You know, that's, that is in some ways, um, I, I think, why we historically have enjoyed entertainers in general. You know, people who uh, in circuses and things like that could, could do these amazing quote unquote things, 
that are really very simple tasks. You know, there were tightrope walkers who would walk across a rope from one end to the other in, in, in the circus. That's a really simple idea. That's a really simple <laughs> task. I'm going to walk uh, across a straight line. What's interesting about that idea is sort of this improv game that improvers use of, of playing what if. What if we took that rope? What if we took that uh, straight line and we put it 100 feet up in the air? And so in some ways, that's what Christopher Nolan, you know, does with his stories and his filmmaking is he takes that straight line and he puts it 100 feet up in the air. And so it's, it's death defying. It's amazing. But at the end of the day, it's a super simple idea. The films and stories that have resonated throughout history, think about uh, think about E.T. Did you ever see E.T.? Of course. Most people have Cried. seen E.T., right? I Cried. cry every time I see it. <laughs> So E.T. is a story about an alien that is just trying to get back home. Oh, what's The Wizard of Oz about? Oh, it's the story of a young woman who's just trying to get back home. Time and time again, we see these, these really simple ideas, these really simple stories that end up being the ones that, that just penetrate our hearts. Raiders of the Lost Ark was a game changer movie for me as a kid. I wanted to go out and find adventure and discover all these obscurities in, in, in societies and hidden worlds. And it's led me now, I'm, I'm, I'm finishing up a PhD in mythology right now, all because Indiana Jones went looking for the Lost Ark. It changed my story profoundly. Wow. But that's a simple story, man. That's a simple idea. This, this college professor goes looking for a golden box. That is a simple, simple idea. I, I would challenge people to think of, you know, list out the five stories movies, television shows, whatever they're, list out the five stories that have impacted you the most in life. And I would bet there's a simple, simple idea at the core of each one of those stories. The truth so often is, is a simple idea. It, it, I, I know you and I both have a deep appreciation for the storytelling of Pixar, right? Sure, I, I of course. I think you you have uh, somebody from Pixar that's coming to one of your uh, for events. For the conferences, yeah. yeah. The brilliance of Pixar is that you and I love those films and those stories just as much as, as the smallest child does. Well, that should tell you something about the simplicity of really good storytelling. It does not have to be this plot-driven, intricate uh, idea. Sure. It's so often we just confuse people. I think it's why you know stories and magic have an art as an art form have so much in common. You know, it's <sighs> another one of our mutual interests. Yes. And, and you know, when I, when I go to perform a magic trick, and you talk to some other buddies within the magic industry, and they're like, "What are you doing tonight on stage?" <laughs> and I'll list out a few tricks, and they're like, "You're doing what?" <laughs> and, you, and, they, and I was like, "Why?" And I was like, "Dude, I haven't I haven't done that trick for like." You're going to do that for a room, a room full of a thousand smart, intelligent adults. Yeah. I used to do that at my birthday party show when I was 13. <laughs> and it's like they, they get so caught up in, they feel like they have to do a magic trick that is layered with complexities. But sometimes the simplest thing is the most magical in someone's yeah. mind. And I think being a magician has taught me that the same is true of stories. Yeah. Um, because it's probably more about wonder, I think, yes. than how the trick works. I love that. You're, we, as you mentioned, we, we both have this common love 
uh, of magic. And my favorite magic is that that I seen, see done with simple household objects or things found in people's pockets. I am a sucker for coin magic because it's something I have in my pocket mm-hmm. and it connects me so much to the story of, hey, there's something that's here, there's something that's gone, and there's something that's back again. Can I tell you, we, we began talking about Joseph Campbell, that is the hero's journey. There's a person that's here, they're in this world They're sent out on a journey, and they disappear, and they go away. But the hero's journey is circular. The hero has to then come back. The hero is here. They go away. They come back. It's the magic trick of something's here, something's gone, something's back. Or something's here, it got cut in half, and now it's back (laughs) together again. (laughs) Yes! Um, And then I think underlying all of that is not just that truth, but also this idea of wonder, which I'm dying to talk a little bit about with you, because it's another one of our, uh, maybe it just comes with the territory of loving magic, but talk to me about wonder. What does wonder mean to you? I have fallen in love with wonder. I am deeply, deeply afraid that our generation has done the upcoming generation a great disservice in that we have emphasized the point of life and what you should be chasing is success. I want to push back against that and say, pursue wonder in your life. If you pursue wonder in your life, the definition of success and what that means will radically change. I, when I fell in love with wonder, I begin waking up every morning saying, oh, I wonder what we're going to do today. <laughs> I wonder what I'm going to discover about the world today. I absolutely love telling stories um, that take place before cell phones and before Google. Because I, I'll be honest with you, I, I worry that these conveniences, as much as I love them, again, my work is at the intersection of art and technology, mm-hmm. as much as I love technology, it has robbed wonder from humanity in a great way. If I want to uh, see what the Taj Mahal looked like, I don't go to Encyclopedia Britannica anymore. I don't go to hear a talk from someone who went and breathed the air in Taj Mahal and brought back slides. I just simply take out my phone and I look at a picture. That can be very detrimental to our creativity. That can be very problematic to our development as human beings. At the end of the day, all great stories come back to the wonder of what it means to be human. How did all of this get here? How did we get here? What is all of this? Regardless of whatever your religious dogma is, we're sort of all working with the same clay when it comes to discovering the wonder of the universe. All we have are our best faiths, our best theories, our best ideas. And to me, that's the most interesting discussions we can have is who are we and why are we here? It's interesting to me. There's um, uh, 
There's a through line between the ancient Hebrew texts of the Bible and Alice in Wonderland that is just absolutely, is one of my favorite stories of all times, Alice in Wonderland. Mine too. Yeah. And when the caterpillar asks Alice, who are you? I feel like this is the same question that's echoed to people in ancient Hebrew texts time after time. Who am I that I have been brought this far? There's this echo that appears throughout all of our ancient wisdom, all of our ancient stories, our myths, our fables, and into our modern pop culture. And it's this question of who am I? What am I doing here? Why am I here? What am I supposed to be doing in this time that I have? Is this all there is? Is is there something more? Is there a really thin veil between me and other? Whatever, Whatever that may be. Those are the questions to me that are life-giving. When I consider the role of wonder in my own life, I've started to ask myself, is wonder something I only experience looking back on a situation? You know, do I look back and say, oh, as a kid, we went to Marvel Cave and I experienced this tremendous feeling of wonder when I think about that. Or, this is the big question I'm wrestling with right now, is there a way to have a daily weekly or monthly regular engagement and practice of wonder. I have become convinced that perhaps wonder is this garden that I could set up a tent and live in and that everything around me can actually be full of wonder. It, It is choosing the lens I'm going to look at that through And it takes work. You know, I didn't wake up one day and say, I'm just going to think everything's wonderful. And by the way, there's a difference between wonder wonder and wonderful. Your life doesn't have to be wonderful to be full of wonder. Those are two very different ideas. I love that, yeah. I believe that wonder is found in situations that are scary and fearful. Wonder is found in situations uh, that that bring anxiety to us. Wonder and awe are not ideas that are always comforting. You always get this sense when you read, you know, ancient stories of, of people that have confronted the divine in some way. You always get this sense that there was wonder But always the first thing any divine entity says to a human is, hey, don't be afraid. Don't worry. (laughs) I'm not going to kill you. (laughs) That's always, you know, one of the first things, you know, that's that's communicated. Um, And and I'm... I've I've had this idea. I work a lot with virtual reality, you know, right mm-hmm. now, and so I've been having this idea of uh, of putting together a virtual reality story uh, that that uses the notorious B.I.G. as the prophet uh, uh, Jeremiah, and I I think that maybe there's a really interesting connection between B.I.G. and Jeremiah that could be an interesting thing to explore in um, uh, virtual reality. 
And it has to do with this idea of, of living life in such a way that you feel like the, the veil between you and, um, and awe and wonder and other is very thin, which is something I get in you know this old school music of the Notorious B.I.G. So those are the sorts of ideas you know that I, I am setting and, and ruminating on right now and I'm excited about because I feel like if, if anyone else enjoys it, that's just the icing on the cake for me. <laughs> but I'll be honest, the stories I tell and, and the, the art that I make, man, it's for me as much as it's for anybody else. And if other people dig it, oh, that's, that's beautiful. That's great. But I don't want to live in a world that doesn't include a virtual reality project that connects the prophet Jeremiah to the notorious B.I.G. I don't want to live in that world. <laughs> and as long as I get to live in the world where that exists, well, that, that's great, you know? I think yeah. so often we're, we're worried about, you know, um, commercializing our art and we're worried about uh, taking our stories and bringing them to a larger audience. And some, some stories that's great for, but... One of the most profound <laughs> recognitions I ever came to, I felt like, was that not every story is for every audience, and not every audience is for every story. And some of the stories I want to tell, it may be for five or ten people, and it may be for 5,000, and it may be for five million, but the quality and the value of the story is not based on the size of the audience. The truth that you communicate is not, should not have a direct correlation to how large you feel your audience is going to be for any piece of art that you create. And for all I know, you and I could be brains in a jar that are just having electrodes sent to it, and neither one of us are even here having this conversation, which is something else I worry about when I think about consciousness and humanity. But that's just me, Harris. That is just me. I don't think it's just you. I think there's a lot of people that worry about that too. It's so interesting to hear John talking about his concerns about technology and how it might be robbing an entire generation and the generations that follow of wonder. And then also consider what John does for a living and how he works at the intersection of art and technology. I think when I hear John express concern about technology, I don't think it's the technology itself that John is concerned about as much as it is what people are accessing through it and how those specific experiences are changing them. Technology is simply the tool that has given us access to so much information. Uh, we can answer any question at a moment's notice, or we can go to the Taj Mahal via virtual reality within seconds and feel like we're actually there. But are we there? Or does it simply feel like we're there? And are those two things the same? Obviously, no. Uh, but is it all somehow robbing us of wonder? In a way, I believe it is. The the irony is that I think it's wonder itself that is drawing us to the technology in the first place, regardless of whether it can deliver wonder in the same way that reality can. I wanted to talk to John about that idea. We're looking at so much new technology that is leaving creators wondering what kind of stories we could tell with that technology. And John is playing a role in some very important conversations among leaders in Hollywood who are having regular discussions about how we can utilize these new technologies responsibly. 
I just finished a book that comes out this summer called Storytelling for Virtual Reality, and um, it's about how to use that medium to tell stories. But one of the things that I did was I sat down with 40 different leaders in the the, the world of virtual reality and artificial intelligence and uh, uh, futurist type technologies. And I, I talked to them about story, but one thing I was very deliberate about was talking to every person about, hey, let's think through for just a second the the ethics of this technology and is there any questions we should be asking that uh, that we're not? For example, you know, what is this what is the effect of this technology going to be long term on, say, children? If we put children in virtual reality experiences, um, is it going to change how their brains develop? Is it going to change how they perceive actual reality? And so, you know, there's just not been enough time to have long scientific studies done on those sorts of things. And there's already people who are, uh, you know, putting their children in virtual reality experiences. And just so people know, yeah. things that were like actual examples, everything from like violent gaming to yeah. pornography to yeah. what, what, you know. Yeah, absolutely. There is a different part of the brain that's accessed through virtual reality where we have, without getting, you know, overly scientific, we, we have what we call um, a, a mediated experience whenever we're watching a film on a screen or a television show on a television, or, or even a YouTube video on YouTube, we know that there's a screen between us and the actual experience. What's different about virtual reality and some of these more futurist technologies is that the part of the brain that recognizes the mediated experience, that part of the brain is not what's tapped in the experience. Uh, we actually feel like we're having the experience that we're in. So for example, in a, in a, uh, a violent video game that maybe a, a parent you know has a child, and, and I'm not somebody who's about censorship or, or anything like that. I, I am about asking good questions. Of course. And so I, in a violent video game, when you kill someone who appears to have a very, very realistic body, and it seems to be a very realistic situation. On a screen, there's a mediated experience that tells the brain, yeah, it's, it's not real, you know? In virtual reality, having that same experience, the brain feels like it's much more real. And so what effect does it have on human beings to, to kill someone over and over when the brain is having the same experience of killing someone in real life? Are we somehow numbing a part of our brains that's going to affect us in the long term over time? Um, I'm concerned about that. I, I'm concerned about artificial intelligence technology that we have the ability you know, to, to create simple consciousness and inject that into a, an artificial reality um, machine. It, Already, Bill Gates and Elon Musk and all these guys have, have asked nations to sign agreements saying if we have the uh, ability to create artificial intelligence that actually is superior or smarter to us, that we won't do it because we could actually wipe ourselves off the planet <laughs> by doing that. Everyone is concerned about how do we make money off of art and technology. 
And there's not a lot of people asking these hard questions about what are the ethics of these things. And so when I went in and sat down with these leaders, you know, to create this book, this was a conversation that I had with every one of them. And I'll be honest, a lot of them didn't want to have the conversation. A lot of them were not really interested in engaging that conversation because they have shareholders they're worried about, uh, you know, bringing money to. But I can tell you this, right now we're living in an age where if you go to a restaurant, every person in there is on their phone. No one's communicating with each other. I wish there had been someone 40 years ago when this technology that was being, was being developed to at least have had the conversation about, hey, are we going to affect a significant part uh, of humanity and the way that human beings communicate for the negative? And is there a way that maybe we could tweak this just a bit and make it a little bit better? Harris, I don't want to stop technology. I love technology. I do want us to be wise. I do want us to ask questions that help us tell a better story than the simple story that money is the only reason we should ever develop technology. So you don't want Westworld to become a real thing. <laughs> well, you know, this is something else that I do. Something we haven't talked about is that um, I, uh, I'm fortunate enough to uh, get to work with HBO on, sure. on different shows. And so I, um, I worked a lot uh, around Westworld and having these conversations um, with, uh, with people involved with that uh, show and uh, people connected to HBO and, and wrote a lot about that. I, I hosted a podcast where I talked about that a lot. Um, but I am worried about um, our ability to engage our most shadowed fantasies in a way that seem real to us. What effect will that have on us? How, how will that change us? Maybe it seems like it doesn't affect us at all right now. But most significant changes are like turning a huge, huge ship. They happen slow. But this is new technology for me. There, there are children, you know, I, I saw your children a few minutes ago. They're going to grow up in a world uh, of technology that is just second nature to them. Where you and I might never allow someone to implant a digital chip into our skin, <laughs> um, there's probably coming a generation that won't think twice about letting someone implant a digital chip in their skin to have sensory experiences based on, you know, uh, digital uh, uh, chips that are controlled via Wi-Fi. Um, th there's already so much technology that exists that we don't have access to yet only because someone hasn't figured out a way to monetize it. And it's scary in some ways. It, it could literally change a, a great deal of who we are. But I can tell you one thing. I refuse to live in fear of those things. And I don't think having the discussion being motivated out of fear is the right approach. I live in Hollywood. This is a town based on fear. Everyone here is scared to death of where is my next project coming from? What if the project I'm doing right now doesn't, doesn't pan out? What if people don't like it? Every decision that's made here is greatly based on fear. And I've chosen to live here and not live my life based on fear. I've chosen to confront uh, the, the fears that I have and welcome them to the conversation. Um, 
there was this guy, this child psychologist named Bruno Bettelheim that wrote a book back in the 70s called The Uses of Enchantment. And he talked a lot about um, the relationship that children have to monsters and the stories of monsters and the necessity of monsters and stories that are told to children and how oftentimes our emerging generations are more reluctant to tell stories of monsters to children. And Bruno Bettelheim said that the problem with leaving the monsters out of the story was that children never learned to become comfortable or to deal with the biggest monster they were most afraid of, and that's the monster that lived inside of them. And I think that is a very, very important lesson for us as storytellers. Our job is not to make the most palatable story to human ears. Our job is to tell true stories. Our job is to tell stories about the real monsters that exist inside of us and around us. I'll, I'll conclude this little uh, idea about monsters with with challenging you with this. There's a lot of different types of stories out there. There's fairy tales and there's fables and there's myths. And fables were a type of story that we don't often like today because they seem so simple and they seem to just have this one point and there seems to be a good character and a bad character and you know we know the world's much more nuanced than that. Probably the most famous, you know, fable is the story of the tortoise and the hare, you know, about this, this rabbit and this turtle that are having a race and the, the, the rabbit knows he can win the race. And so he runs up to the finish line and he takes a nap and the, uh, doesn't cross the line and the turtle slow and steady wins the, the race and crosses the line while the rabbit's asleep. We hear that today and we, we say, oh, so that story is telling me to, I should be like the, the, the tortoise and slow and steady wins the race and not like the hare. But people at the time when fables were a part of the cultural fabric understood that fables were about two sides of you. They were about two personalities that existed inside of the same person. So inside of me is a tortoise and a hare. And it's, it's not I need to avoid the, the people in my life that are like the hare or I need to fully embody the, the tortoise. It's coming to the peace in the balance of there's a tortoise and a hare inside of me. And it's a much more complex story when you think about both of those characters existing inside of you and living your life in such a way that recognizing sometimes I've got to be content with the fact that slow and steady wins the race. Other times, I may be able to run up to the finish line and, and rest a little bit. But there's this interesting tension of the opposites that exists inside of each of us, that we walk out our daily journey. This is an old mythological idea, this idea of the tension of the opposites. But they're sort of both necessary in order to find the sort of balance that truly brings happiness. We've got to be... Um, able to recognize that without uh, shaming the, that part of us that we say, ah, sometimes I just want to rest, but then sometimes I'm just lazy. And, it, it, you know, taking a nap, sometimes it's because we're lazy and sometimes we need the rest. It's not that taking a nap is a bad thing. Right. It's recognizing the motivation behind the nap.
By now, hopefully you're beginning to understand why I love John Booker. He is full of wisdom and lives a life rich in wonder. We need more John Bookers in the world and in our communities. That's one of the reasons why we've invited John to come to Story 2017 this fall in Nashville. He'll be giving an incredible talk on stage, expanding on some of the ideas you've just heard him talk about, in addition to a full breakout session on the role of technology in storytelling. You can learn more about the conference and all of the other amazing speakers currently announced as part of our initial conference lineup on our brand new site, story2017.com. While there, you'll learn more about our theme for this year, a carnival of curiosity. Our theme came out of some of the ideas John was sharing about the role of monsters in our life and in our work. Monsters are not only a reality, but sometimes a necessity. They seem to play a magical role, not only in stories, but in our creative process. And if you are not creating because of the fear of a monster under your bed, the thing that makes you willing to look over the edge and peek underneath is curiosity. When your curiosity is greater than your fear, magic begins to happen. So this year, our conference is a carnival of curiosity. Be sure to check out story2017.com at the end of this episode to reserve your seat. I promise you it will be an incredible experience and a more than worthwhile investment into both your life and your creative work. Uh, It's going to be incredible. In the meantime, let's get back to the final portion of our conversation with John and his closing words of advice to the story community. You know, the the last thing I'll say is this. um, Prometheus stole fire from the gods and he felt estranged and Pandora opened the box and uh, was estranged, you know, from the gods. And I, I, I remember when I was living in New York City, often feeling estranged. And I remember I was riding the subway one day and uh, I, I looked up and there's this really interesting sign on the subway. And anyone who's ever lived in New York or even visited there may have seen it. And it's this sign that says on the subway that if you feel sick, don't pull the emergency cable inside the subway car but step out on the platform and inform the conductor that you're not feeling well and that someone will come to your aid. And it says this phrase that that blew me away. It says, you will not be left alone. Hmm. And I think at the end of the day, that is our great hope as storytellers, to comfort people with those words that you're not alone. You won't be left alone. If there's any advice I could give to storytellers, disturb the comfortable, bring comfort to the disturbed, and assure everyone that they won't be left alone. So good, man. You are not alone. It's why we do this podcast. It's why we do the hard, though oftentimes unnoticed work of curating live gatherings. It's why we do all the things we do, because we need each other. I hope this conversation with John was as much of an inspiration to you as it has been to me. If you've yet to join us at one of our gatherings, I hope you'll consider it. As I mentioned before, Story 2017 is shaping up to be an unforgettable event. Take a moment to check out story2017.com and register. You'll save 100 bucks off the cost of registration if you register before May 31st. As always, thanks for listening to the Story Podcast. 
I can't wait to have another amazing conversation next week with another creator about the power of stories. This episode was produced by Harris III. It was mixed by Chad Michael Snavely and music was written by Aaron Farmer. The Story Podcast is a production of Astoria Collective. Thank you for listening.